Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Spark Sessions Podcast. Chris and I would just like to express our continued gratefulness for your support and for your willingness to be on this journey with us. As always, we invite you to like, follow, share, and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on all of the social media outlets. In this episode, we bring you part two of the interview with Christy Puckett-Williams, civil rights activist and smart justice manager for the ACLU of North Carolina. In this episode, Christy continues a very honest and transparent conversation with us about what it takes to be a collective in the racial and social justice movement. So if you've not listened to part one of the interview with Christy, we do invite you to do that now as these episodes really are meant to be listened to in order. We also just want to bring your attention to some audio issues at the end of this episode. You'll hear a little bit of feedback, Um, not something that we could edit out, but we just wanted to uh, give you a heads up and we invite you now to listen with open ears, open minds and an open heart as Christy continues to just motivate us in this movement to activate change. I'm sitting here thinking about like, you know, you can't separate a person from the environment in which they are exist. Right. And so those, those two things are symbiotic. It, people show up and, and are able to express themselves based on their access to resources, the structural racism that they, they suffer under all these things. You cannot separate people out from their experience like that. You can't, I mean, it's difficult. Like I will always be poor in my mind, even if I'm a millionaire, because I spent so many years in poverty. Like I, 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 you know what I mean? Like I will always be poor. Even if I get a pardon tomorrow from the governor, I'll still behave like someone who has multiple felonies because it is just there now. Like it's, it, I've had to practice in this way so long that my default is that, right? Yeah. That is my default. And so like, we have to understand where people are and have, again, that's why trauma informed anything not even care, but trauma informed interactions is so important because when you understand trauma, you know, it lessens the ego. Like I don't take things personally when people are upset and I know I ain't done anything. I don't know what they got going on. I don't personalize it. I don't, I I have a trauma informed response, which is they probably have a lot going on. I just don't understand. Right. Or something has happened. I know that I didn't do anything to warrant this. So I'm just going to say that their trauma has been triggered whatever that trauma is, and I'm still going to treat them with like compassion and dignity. And that has really worked because people be coming out of the pocket, but they don't be realizing they be coming out of the pocket because their trauma has been triggered. Right. And so Mm -hmm. when I, if I respond in a way that continues to trigger that trauma, then we're going to have, you know, we're going to keep having interactions. But if I, in my trauma informed responses, like their trauma is probably getting triggered and I immediately bring myself down. Right. And don't allow my trauma to be triggered. Then we're able to work through it. And so like, I would say like just having, holding space for yourself and for other people. Like we are so hard on ourselves and we're so hard on other people. We just have to have a lot more, especially today. I mean, black folks today, y'all, I don't know. Like, I don't know how much more we can take. Yeah. I, I don't know with before just popping, right? I just feel like the amount of vicarious trauma from watching other black people be harmed because of technology and the way that things spread very quickly and you can immediately consume those things and the way that the media cycle plays them over and over and over and over and over again, like self-care is, is, is paramount need right now for black, brown and poor folks. Mm-hmm. Um, because watching this army 
person down in South Carolina accost this young black boy and push him. And I live in an all white mm -hmm. neighborhood now. And I live in a neighborhood where people walk and stuff like they walk their dogs. You know, I came from the hood where you know you walk no dog to walk dog get thing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like I be watching my neighbors walk the dogs. Like, oh, okay, dude, that's cool. That's what we do. And um <laughs> And, you know, it was like a culture shock moving over here, right? It's a homeowner association and they be really regulating stuff. Um, but I also see the racist nature of it, right? Like, right? And so I'm also like, if that was my son, that man had to push, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm, right. And so like, it's just really, really, folks are being, uh, have been deputized. White folks have been deputized by white supremacy. Absolutely. To check black folks. And I think that is going to get worse before it gets better. And that we really have to like stop being so optimistic as Americans and really get down to like the reality of what's happening. I remember George Carlin said, the American dream, you got to be sleep to believe it, right? Mm -hmm. And that was powerful for me because we have been dreaming. Everything we talk about is a dream. Life, liberty, pursuit, that's a dream, child. We ain't got none of that. You know what I'm saying? We still working to attain those things. Who got who has life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Like, you know, we're all struggling in a capitalistic system that requires us to work 40 hour weeks at minimum. You know what I'm saying? Right. That doesn't prioritize our care, that doesn't prioritize our humanness and our wholeness, our parents, our anything, right? And so, like, we really are living in this illusion of grandeur, the delusion of grandeur. Uh, we as a collective are very mentally ill. Uh, the delusion that we are a good country is just, that's laughable to me. Like make America great again. Y'all remember that? We were like, when was America great? I know a lot of black people, I know like, oh, we was great. <laughs> for real? Like, oh, okay. Thanks for the memo. Because it's not great for us. It's never been great for us. Depending, it's depending for us. on who, right? Or according to mm -hmm. who. Not even who. Not even, like depending on who, like even rich black people ain't got it good. Oprah Winfrey still get profiled, Tyler Perry still get, you know, clocked by the police. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't matter in this country how much or how little you have. If you are Black, you are automatically at a disadvantage. And so, like, I think our work, my work, is to navigate that in, in authentic, truthful, transparent ways. I think, you know, being that I'm a product of interracial relationship, my dad uh, being a white man, my mom being a, a Black woman, uh, puts me in a unique position, doesn't put me in a better position, puts me in just in a different position than other Black folks, right? And so I just think that for me, I see the evolution, right? That we had segregation, then it was like, well, let's integrate. And integrate doesn't really mean inclusion, y'all. It just means okay. we're going to put a whole bunch of people together. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They right. still maintaining their separateness, but we just put them together. And I think for me, I have watched like, segregation, integration, and now we're trying, we're trying to work on inclusion because we integrate. And so it's like this, the steps that we've gone through as a society, whereas we used to talk about equality, but now it's not equality, it's equity. equity. And so like, mm -hmm. I can see the growth, right? I remember when I was little, we were like a family of aliens. Cause when we would go out, you know, my dad being white, my mom being black, everybody would stop and stare, you know, <laughs> like, hey, how y'all doing? You know what I mean? And so like, we were like, all eyes on us, Tupac. And <laughs> now when I walk and I see children who look like I did when I was little and I look at their families, it's so many, right? And, and it's like, right, I guess we were pioneers. I guess this is what we were working towards. But then I'm also hyper aware that we haven't done a lot of work to make sure that when we do integrate, 
that we have the honest conversations about what that actually means, right? So when I look at George mm-hmm. Floyd's girlfriend calling for peace, yeah, telling black folks to be peaceful, that makes me mad because these police literally snuffed your, your boyfriend's life out because he was a black man and you calling for peace. When I look at Dante Wright's mama, who is either very light-skinned or white, calling for black folks to be peaceful after her son was just murdered by the police. That makes me mad. Yeah. Because if you're gonna be with black people and procreate with black people, you have a responsibility to understand the plight of blackness. Absolutely. Right? And to understand the implications of that. You can't be bringing people into this world that you're not gonna arm and equip with the tools to navigate that. And I'm, I'm grateful for my parents because my parents, my mama was very honest with us that our dad was white. You ain't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you need to get that through your head. Your daddy is white. You are not. And because you are not, you need to show up in this way. Right? And I just urge white parents of black children to have those conversations. And don't get on TV telling us to be peaceful when the police wasn't peaceful when they was killing us. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. don't do that. And they put you up there to say that, to be a tool of the system. Don't be a tool of the system, white parents of black children. You know what I'm saying? I don't care if you, I get it. You don't want peace. I don't want no peace when they kill my kid. I'm gonna tell you right now, I want you to burn it down, baby. Okay? Because at the end of the day, they're not gonna stop until they feel the exact same thing. And they're not gonna feel, I don't mean kill them. People in power care about their stuff. They could give a damn if we marching in the street. They care about when them windows get broke, when them cars get damaged, right? They care about the their property. That's mm-hmm. why looting is an acceptable form of protest. Looting is a very acceptable, because what you're doing is you're not just stealing stuff for yourself. You're attacking the very root of what they, right? And so they've attacked the very root of what we value, which is each other. And so mm-hmm. now when you are looting, you are attacking a counterattack of what they really value, which is the stuff. They can give a damn about the people. They care about that stuff. You got to look beyond just the free stuff. It is about, I am taking from you what you value. You value that stuff. You could care less if black people go out here and kill each other all day. They could care less about that. That that happens. They could care less about that. But break into that target and take that TV and see if the SWAT team don't come down there and try to figure out what's going on that target. You feel what I'm saying? And so Mm -hmm. like, if you look at the way that the police move, they say one thing out of their mouth, but their actions show what what they really value. They value the property. They could care less. If you look at any of the protests, what do they say? Oh, they were destroying property as if destroying property that can be replaced and that is insured gives them license to harm, damn near kill, tear gas, use chemical munitions that are banned in warfare on their own people. We pay for them to hurt us, y'all. Like, that's what I want people to understand. Like, these police, y'all do what we pay them. We pay them to kill us. We pay them, y'all, okay. Y'all good with that? Because I I mean, but again, it can't just be one person. It has to be a collective of people who are saying, like, we're not doing this anymore. It it can't just be black folks. It has to be a rainbow, like to Fred Hampton's point, it has to be a rainbow coalition of people who are activating and who can agree that we don't always have to agree on everything or the same thing, but on this issue of racial and social justice, this is where we agree and this is where we agree to fight. And we also have to stop policing each other and kill the cops in our own head. Because what I've seen at protests is people assuming the role of the police. Mm. But you out here telling everybody, oh, don't do this and don't. Well, you 
might as well be the police. You're telling people what to do and how to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? I thought we hated the police. Why are we policing each other? It's a protest, not a parade. Okay, so a parade is like, let's go together. We're gonna. This ain't no parade. This is a protest. We are disrupting and agitating. But the fact that you come out here to police us, right? It's not just about the police either. It's about that deep internal work of how do you show up in a space, right? So I'm mm -hmm. responsible for how I show up in a space. I have to kill the cop in my head. When I feel the desire to tell people, don't do this or don't do that, that's not for me to do. I should give them the information that they need to make the decision that they need to make. If you do this, you can do that. Sure, you can do that. But if you do that, that's a class one felony and it carries this amount of time. That's all I do. I ain't telling you not to break the window. I'm just saying if you break the window, just understand what's coming. Okay, coming <laughs> you can break that. it. Yeah. And I'm gonna still bail you out and come to court and support you even if you break the window, right? Like, so helping people understand that even if they engage in behaviors that are outside of the norm, right? Of what we have described as normal in our criminal code, that the support that they have, our support doesn't end because you did this thing, right? So even if you break the window and you get this felony, we still, you're still a member of the community, you're still valued. And so I think that the way that we try to work is, again, bringing people's whole experiences to this work and accepting that their experience is valuable. Um, even if we don't see the value right now, there is value in the experience. I've seen lots of folks come into the movement who didn't think they had any value in the movement and proved to be invaluable in the movement mm -hmm. because they were able to I don't know. We had one guy who knew all about drones, right? You know what I mean? That's invaluable to a movement. If you're talking about drones and people are like, oh, let's, we should get a drone. Well, you need somebody who knows how to operate it. Do you need an FAA license? So you need people with various skill sets. Various, you, would, would, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And that's what I try to encourage people who say, Christy, I want to do something. What is it that you want to do? And they're always like, I don't know. Well, what can you do? And they're like, mm. well, I don't know what I can do. And it's like, no, think, do you type well? I mean, because the movement doesn't just mean marching in the street. The right. movement requires planning, strategizing, acting. And so everyone has a role. You might be a canvasser. You could be a phone banker. You might be somebody that just brings water. You might be somebody that sends money, you know? So being a part of the movement doesn't have to look like how my movement work looks. It can look like how your movement work looks. But what it can't do is undermine the work of others. And what it can't do is put people in danger. So if your work is placing people in danger or undermining the work of other people, um, then you should probably stop. And, and I don't do any work in a vacuum by myself or in a silo. All of my work is done in community with other people. Christy, when you, you've made me think about a lot of things right now, I'm thinking about how you talk about in the movement, it requires a lot of folks to show up in different ways, to use different experiences, different um, strengths and to show up on different levels. So I'm thinking a little bit about allyship here, which I want to circle back to, but it also makes me think about as a white woman, understanding my whiteness and how that shows up with me and just, mm -hmm. you know, the importance of, of as someone who is an ally to the movement, understanding my whiteness and mm -hmm. as a white woman, how I'm a I can be a very dangerous person. I can weaponize my femininity and my whiteness at the drop of a hat. Mm. And understanding that and knowing that is crucial to being, I believe, being a white person in this movement. So I just, I wanted to put that out there and wanted to ask you really around allyship and how you, mm. how you see allies showing up mm. in this work. What is it? What does that mean for you? What do you? How do we show up in this work and be effective? Yeah. So I don't call them allies because I don't believe that you are allies. 
I call them code conspirators and code defendants. That means that if I get arrested in the paddy wagon, your ass sitting right there beside <laughs> me talking about how we're going to get out, who we call it. I'm talking about, Perfect. I don't know. That's what it looks like to me. Don't look like you sending me no bond money. No. Are you locked up with me? Be locked right. up with me because we know mm -hmm. what happens in the movement, right? When the police run, they come for black bodies. And so the most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen, I've ever experienced is when at one night I had been shot, like, I don't even know y'all, like the days before. And my body was battered and beat down, had been pushed down by the police and all kinds of stuff. So I was sore and I was walking and we came up to the police and we were in a confrontation with them. And this white girl kept being all in my way. You know, I'm a protester, don't like people all up on me. You know, I'm a victim of violence. So you got to give me my 50 feet. You know what I'm saying? And we're in the middle of a pandemic. So she kept being all up on me. I'm like, girl, move. Like, now you, everywhere I move, you moving. And so then I moved over here. She kind of like, uh-uh, now this ain't going to work. Because I felt like, you know what I'm saying? This getting ready to go left. Like, why are you following me? So I turned around. I was like, hey, like, why are you all up on me? <laughs> and she was like, oh, no, Christy, I'm so sorry. I'm just here. So if the police shoot, then they shoot me and not you. Wow. And I was mm -hmm. floored. I was like, what? I was like, that's what they're standing here getting shot for me. She was like, no, that's my duty. I'm a white woman. They, they're not going to shoot me. And guess what, y'all? We didn't get shot that night. Wow. She, she was a human shield. To me, that was a powerful moment of, that's a co-defendant. That's a co-conspirator. If those police had ran down on me to try to arrest me right then, she would have fought them and she would have gotten arrested and I would have potentially gotten away or would have got arrested with her. But that is what, uh, a good uh, ally is. And when we train, when we work with white folks in the movement, we tell white folks, you know, how to show up. I'll never forget we went to a prison. So we were in this rural North Carolina County. And I'll never forget one of the other organizers had said to us, you see, this is why sometimes being from the city is not good for you. So one of the other organizers was like, y'all sure y'all want to go at 530 in this rural county on a Friday? We like, yeah, <laughs> why not? What you mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? So he kept saying, well, y'all, it's 5.30. And I'm like, what does 5.30 got to do with anything, man? So boom, we like bump it, we going. So we get down to the prison and we doing our like rolling protests, like blowing the horns, we see you, we love you. And the next thing you know, police car at the front, police car at the back. Now we locked in and the police get out of their cars. And we were smart though. We put the white people in the cars in the front and the back. We told all black drivers to get in the middle because they can't pull over the middle of the parade. They can pull over the front or the back, but they can't pull over the people in the middle is what in our minds, right? So they pulled over, the, so they pulled us all, pulled us all over pretty much. And so they asked the white guy in the front, like, what are y'all doing? What? He's like, oh, we heard it was great. And the police let us go. <laughs> so there's 20 cars, 30 cars of people are leaving. And the police do absolutely nothing because the white man in the front said he heard it was a parade. Now, if there had been my black behind up in there talking about I heard it was a parade, we would mm -hmm. all been locked up still. You know what I mean? And so it's like, we know the way society is set up. And so using your whiteness to be the shield that it can, so it doesn't have to be the weapon. Whiteness can be a shield or it can be a weapon. And so you learning, like Kenny Rogers told you, when to hold and when to fold and when to walk away and when to run. Like you got to know when. And so like when black people are telling you now, activate now, now. Don't be talking about now, yes, now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't be scared because whatever happens to you is not gonna be what would happen to me. And if something does happen to you, best believe it won't happen to another you. It'll be 15 Trayvon Martins. We got Tamir Rice, Trayvon. We can name all kind of black folks. But how many white people have been hurt by the police that we can just name? Mm 
because they don't keep doing it. When they hurt one white person, boy, they get their stuff together, honey. They don't keep hurting white folks. And so like when we talk about training of the police, I don't believe in that at all. Like training, they train not to hurt white people. They need the same training that they got not to hurt white people. They need to apply that to black people because we don't see them throwing white drivers on the side of the ground, on the ground at a traffic stop. We don't see white people getting pulled over for their tag being covered. We don't see white people being pulled over for having air freshener hanging out in their car. We don't see those mm-hmm. things happen to white people, right? And so like the fact mm-hmm. that they can reserve and pick and choose who they shoot, who they hurt, beat harm, means that it's not a training issue. It's who they see as human issue. And uh, I think that's where we have to, when we talk about whiteness and allyship, white folks cannot see black folks as of of people who are in need. They need to see them as people. Not people who are in need, people, period. Yeah, well, we all look at the dehumanization of the black body. Um, And when we think about the carceral system and the carceral state, right, and black men, and always being looked at as like black men are dangerous when you see a black man, you know, if that's ingrained, if you're socialized to believe that, you know, that's, that's some deeper level issues of things. And you're right. I think that really having to like rehumanize people um, is extremely important. Extremely. Well, and the flip side of that, Michelle, is that like this, right? That while the police are dehumanizing black folks, what do we think black folks are doing to the police? We've dehumanized them, right? Like in response to that, we're not able mm. to see their humanity. And because they come in our neighborhoods mm. and represent the big bad boogeyman, we see them as that and we, we, we respond accordingly to the threat that they are, right? Not mm-hmm. the threat that we think they are, that they, like, right. they think we are a threat, but we are responding to the threat that we know that they are. And there's no grace for that, but there's an immeasurable amount of grace for police not seeing black folks as human. You see that? So it's like this double-edged sword, right? Like there's there's two right. truths. There's one there's one path for black folks and one path for white folks. And it's been that way. It's going to be that way. Um, and it's going to continue to be that way until, until, like until somebody says, not even somebody, until we collectively say, I no longer, like I'm going to tell you how uncomfortable I am. I am no longer, y'all, in professional spaces, code switching. I'm just not doing it no more. For years, mm-hmm. I have code switch, talk professional, and put on my professional voice, you know? I'm not doing that no more. Like, this is who mm-hmm. I am. I'm from XFO, Nation Sport Road, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and this is how <laughs> we talk. Period. This is how we talk. And if you don't understand, then I can clarify for you, whatever, whatever, but like, don't let it fool you. I still got that same master's degree that everybody else got. I still got this. You feel what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. I speak in a different way, in a tone, in a way that is my culture. I speak in African in African-American dialect, right? You know what I'm saying? And so like, this is the English that I speak. And that I think is something that we have to be, begin doing. We have to normalize blackness, y'all. That blackness is not an anomaly. It's not an add-on. It's not, you know what I'm saying? That it's blackness- not an other. No, it's just what yeah. it, it just is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just a standard, like e- Ebonics, right? It's just as standard as the Queen's English, right? Like that, that Southern dialect, right? Like we've normalized y'all. Like, right? Everybody mm-hmm. says y'all all across the country now, right? Mm-hmm. Y'all. We've normalized that. Now, back in the day, that was like improper English and you was looked down upon for speaking like that, right, right, right? And so it's like that type of thing. I think because we have tried to assimilate as Black folks to maintain that we are just as good, that we try to maintain European standards and it's time for us to just say, like, we don't have a culture because y'all stole it. So this is the culture that we got. And it's a hood culture. Well, if you didn't like it, stop creating ghettos. Stop creating hoods. And you won't have to hear people, uh, see people, you wouldn't have to see hood culture. But since you created the hood and it's here, it is what it is. I am from a trap culture. I, you know what I'm saying? I grew up 
in a trap culture, listening to trap music. And for folks who don't know what that means, that's like drug dealing. It's not like gangster rap West Coast, but it's more like down South. We sell dope all day, right? <laughs> so like, that's how I grew up. That's, that's what I listen to. That's what I'm comfortable with. Even though I know it's glorifying, you know, a lifestyle that'll get you sent to prison. Is that why it's bad? Like, it's glorifying being a small business owner, being in your community, right? We can frame it a lot of different ways, but we say it's glorifying violence and it's glorifying this. Well, if it wasn't a crime, what would it be? What would we say about it, right? Like, we, slavery was legal. And so, like, this whole thing about, like, what's legal and what's not, we got to get out of that. What, what's mm-hmm. legal and what's not? Like, we could, AirPods could be illegal tomorrow if somebody passed the bill and they were made illegal. You see what I'm saying? So, like, that's why we can't, we can't deal in, like, what's legal. We have to deal in the what's moral, what's right. right. And, and even what's moral is not what our forefathers thought moral was. Moral, right. they thought that black folks and white folks shouldn't be together. They thought that black folks was three-fifths human. They thought that women shouldn't do, do anything. You know what I'm saying? We got to redefine what our morals are as well. And then let those morals and values kind of, like, guide how we how we move in the world. Um, I think this country on its fifth constitution, why are we still hanging on to the first one? Hmm. The people who wrote that constitution don't look like us. They don't represent who we are today in 2021. Why are we still holding on to a document that was written in 17, whatever, 1776? Why are we still holding on to that? We had people who wrote that that said all men are created equal, but still held people enslaved. Enslaved. Like what? Yeah. Like you can't, no. Like it, it's the whole document is false because it was written under falsehoods. It was written out of both sides of the mouth. And so like, if we really want to have a country that represents, we're gonna have to kind of go through that reckoning that other countries have had to go through. So we talked a lot about getting involved in the movement, what that may look like, how you getting involved in the movement is, you know, that's out of your lived experience. And so one of the things that we really want to do with this podcast, and we're just highlighting so many people out doing so many different things, is we want people to understand um, what it means to get involved. You know, how do we move from advocacy to action? But I want to ask you a question because we hear this a lot. Now, you know, we work with social work students, and so we Mm -hmm. have some ideas about different things, and we talk to students about different things, but this is for everybody. And I really want to ask you, you know, a lot of times I hear people say, like, there's so much going on. I have lost hope. I'm overwhelmed. You know, I just really don't know what to do to get involved. What would you say to them? I would say that when the pain becomes great enough, they'll do something different, right? That pain is the greatest motivator for change and that they're in a very privileged spot to be able to pick and choose whether they jump in or not. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a sign of privilege because those who have to, do. But beyond that, <laughs> beyond the privilege, once they work beyond their privilege, how do they get involved? You know, volunteer, talk to different groups. You know, uh, people want to get paid for stuff. That's, that's the biggest thing I've seen people. They come mm. to this work thinking they're going to get paid and not understanding that those of us who now do get paid to do this work, we're working for free for years, yeah. for years, literal years. Okay. And not two years, not three years, five, six, seven, eight years of just working because that's what needed to be done. And so finding a group that you identify with whose values, uh, a lot of people want to come in and, and start their own work because they, they're doing that for ego-based and they want to get grants, they want to do this, you know, like, right? But find a group that's already working on an issue that's near and dear to your heart or maybe that you want to know more about and just commit to learning more about that issue. Commit to learning from that group. Um, uh, or if the group is not run by people directly impacted by that issue, finding people who are directly impacted by that issue, talking to them, being in community with them, not just to learn and, and, and to uh, 
download their brains, but to be in relationship with, mm-hmm. right? And to have a relationship with folks and get to know people. And you'll see the work will emerge because people will begin to tell you what their needs are, what their lacks are. And then you can decide if you can help fulfill that or not. Um, you also have to decide do you want to be direct services or not. I don't, I'm mm-hmm. not direct services. I used to be in direct services and that was great, but, and we need people to be direct services. But I know that my strength, my my strength was not, it was working with the people directly, but I also knew that I had an ability to talk to people in decision-making positions and influence them. So for me, it was more, it was better for the people that I was working with if I didn't work with them anymore and work with the people who actually made policies that impacted them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I decided to tackle the problem at the structural level, that it was the structures that I'm trying to disrupt and dismantle, not so much the people. Um, And so you have to decide, do you want to serve people directly or is it the systems and the structures that you want to disrupt and interrupt? And then once you figure that, and you can do both, like I still mm-hmm. serve with Block Love Charlotte, uh, feeding homeless folks. Like I go out and do direct service and volunteer. Um, but then on the flip side, I also look at the structures that create homelessness. So how can Absolutely. I work with city council to create affordable housing options? What are policies? What are things that are being done across the country? You know, and, and not just city council. How do I work at the state level to provide the cover that city council would need to create a progressive policy? Because let's just be okay. clear, city council can do whatever it want to do, but the GA may not agree with it and then they'll come by. Like we saw that with HB2. And HB2. so like mm-hmm. yes, my exactly. job is not even to work at the local level as much as it is to ensure that on the, at the state, that those state legislators understand the issues and understand them deeply and understand them in, uh, in a way so that they're not a barrier. They may not be a actor, but at least they're not blocking. And so mm-hmm. sometimes our work is to neutralize uh, folks. It's just to make them not say anything as opposed to like coming out bad. And so it looks at a lot of different varied ways. I mean, I have a friend who told me he wants to be a lobbyist. He's in his 50s. He's like, Christy, I want to be a lobbyist. I want to do what you do. I'm like, do you really? And he's like, I think I could be good at it. And when I thought about it, you know, he really could. So like, boom, we'll bring you in, train you on lobbying and all of those good things, you know, and have volunteers that that do different things because we believe that, again, these are not skills that should just be held by people in our positions. My thing as a privileged staff member of the ACLU is to be like a Robin Hood. My job is to ascend as far as I can in this organization, any other organization, so that I can bring the resources and the power to my people because that's who the resources belong to anyway. That's who can effectively bring the change that needs to happen anyway. It's not going to be the attorneys or the lobbyists of the ACLU who bring about and create and sustain the change. It will be the people. Um, And so our job is to create resources. People closest to the problem are closest to the solution, Mm -hmm. furthest from the resources and the power. Our job is to make those resources and power readily available to the communities. And so we work in a lot of partnerships um, with various organizations, because we know we have a lot of brand recognition. We know we're a strong organization. So how do we lend our platform, our branding? How do we lend our power as an organization to the people uh, is how we're looking at working um, in the future. Great. Christy, that's great. Thank you so much. This no has problem. been, every time I am in community with you or hear you speak, it, I don't know, you just reaffirm um, why I'm doing this work. So thank you so much for the way that you show up and um, for everything that you're doing to advance social and racial equity and justice. We appreciate you. Thank y'all. Thank you so much.
Do you know any activists or doers that you would like for us to highlight on this podcast? If so, let us know. Or if you just want to keep in touch, connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Spark Sessions Podcast or on Twitter at Spark Session Pod. Thanks, y'all.